All right, guys, welcome back. So, as you know, Laura is out on vacation, probably enjoying some Mai Tais on a boat right now in the middle of nowhere. So today we have Joe joining me as my co-host for today's topics. We're going to talk a little bit about critical thinking, some work-life balance, some cases, a little bit of everything. You're listening to the PT Assistance Podcast with your hosts, Ken and Laura. Thanks for joining for another exciting episode. But let's go ahead and get started with some critical thinking. So so I was going to talk a little bit about, because I did a little, uh, we did an episode a little bit ago. One, on how important critical thinking is, and it's definitely a skill that you'll need to have when going into this field. And two, I found myself not really fine-tuning this skill. So I had to talk to my bosses, figure out ways on how to kind of improve this, because it's not something that's just like, oh, here, just read this book and you're good. Like, this is something that's acquired. So Joe's also here to talk about with his 10 plus years of experience and how he's worked this out. Yeah, so I uh, obviously years in the field do help doing this. I also, when I did get my bachelor's, there was a class that was in critical thinking and how to approach topics. So I think that did help me and it is kind of one of those things as ETAs, they don't spend really too much time teaching us how to do this. It's just kind of something that you acquire while you're going through school and then when you get out into the real world, um, you just kind of start acquiring your own style of how to um, interact with what you have to in your daily work life. So whether that's a diagnosis that you've never seen or that you rarely know um, what to do, or even just interacting with um, different people within the profession, I would say um, you need a level of critical thinking. Um, So So when I, I was like, when I approached it with my, with my bosses, they had two different opinions. I don't know if, you'll lean towards one or the other but for one one was talking more about manual skills and clinical application so he pointed me towards different sources that he's used he said take ceus do a lot of courses like hands-on courses to be able to elevate your toolbox more or less so you can apply these different skills when you see them but my other pt he said manual skills stay the same and they've stayed the same for a long time in this profession. It's not something that evolves over time. He said the thing that does evolve is the case studies, the new research that comes out and different approaches you can take on what's uh, backed by research essentially. So his advice was don't look into manual techniques, look into research. So read one research article a week, see how they applied it. Is it effective? Is it not? And then take those skills and then apply them to your patients. Do you feel like you have a preference on which one? I feel like both are important. I Would you say one is more than the other? Yeah, no. I'm going to have to go with more of the research base. And I have more of a... That's just where my, my bias is. And I, I feel like as a healthcare provider and in the community, that's how it should be. We should be going with what is the research saying? I know 
there are there's so much debates about this with manual therapy to be honest and i'm all for people there's something about physical touch that we can't explain some people just need to have it but the placebo effect is really real and some of the more riskier um interventions that personally i can't do in colorado so high velocity low magnitude like um Oh, like the joint five Yeah, yeah, joint grade five mobs. Like, I don't do those. And, you know, I've taken a lot of classes lately that just like the risk to benefit ratio is not really showing much difference than doing like a grade three or grade four, like mobilization. So it's like, why wouldn't we do the less risky intervention and have the same outcome? So that's where i'm at with that stuff and then for every other treatment like even exercises we're giving people like we should be able to calculate one rep max and then titrate that to where we need to meet the patient at we should be able to also know the tissue healing time frames that like when's it appropriate to apply you know so much load to that tissue like we should be we should be thinking about this it's not just like the DPT thought process, you know, they're handing their patients off to us. And in a lot of settings, it's more they eval and then we're seeing them for the next, you know, five, six visits. And then they get a, you know, assessment. And they're seven. Yeah. And so we need to be better about how do we think about approaching these things. And for me, it's more of research based. It's like, what is the research saying? And that's gonna look different throughout the years it's going to change it is science science does change we find new outcomes and some stuff that we were doing maybe a year ago or even five years ago like we're not going to be doing it because it's not it's not cost effective and honestly it's it's a waste of time you know yeah and if the if the patient's not benefiting from it too then it's hard yeah. for us to continue that course of treatment. One thing you mentioned that isn't the first time I've heard it actually recently is the, the tissue healing process. How did yeah. you come across learning that? Cause I feel like I've heard about it in the bachelor's program is another way they kind of go more in depth on that. Cause for me personally, that's also a huge hurdle on when to implement certain exercises. So yeah. I have this injury and it's more of a trial and error for me. It's like, Oh, let's give this a try. And yeah. then get that patient feedback their next visit. Oh, did it go well? Did you feel sore? Was you were in pain? Like, do we need to dial it back or kind of go through all those questions? But I have heard of this tissue healing. There are certain milestones or different time frames that you're supposed to look out for. And then that's when you implement it. Like, where did you learn that? So I actually didn't learn it in the bachelor's program. I actually learned it in the initial associate's program. So, and it's funny because I have a... I made like this huge binder of like the best notes that I could take away from the associates program. And in there I had the tissue healing timeframes. I put it for, you know, ligaments, muscle, bone, what have you. And I just kind of like did like how many weeks in the stages. Um, so I definitely didn't learn it in bachelor's. I learned it in the associates. So that's where you kind of get those, variations of it kind of depends on the teacher that's teaching you right are they are they making you study this material did they go over it with you in class or were they like read pages 
200 to 300 and you know that's probably where the information was yeah yeah probably um yeah or we just happened to have a test that they were making sure that we knew that stuff um so i think that is highly important and if you can add that to your treatment session access especially from like a muscle skeletal um standpoint it's pretty important i mean muscles usually it's like six to eight weeks and this is this is multifactorial too don't get me wrong this is like age dependent older we get it's gonna this is very usually true. we're gonna we're gonna heal slower it's gonna depend on your nutrition it's gonna depend yeah, a lot on of the any, comorbidities yep comorbidities that you got going along with it too um so that's what i think about when i'm working with my patients is that first of all i go through and i try to do like a, a case review you know a record review whatever before i see every single patient you know i look at the eval but then i look at everything because i want to know what's what what's going to happen in front of me you know um so then i go from there and you know you do your subjective they come in you ask them you know how they're doing pain levels what are they still struggling with um yeah but as for critical thinking how i apply this i can just go through like how i actually approach this so go for it for, yeah so i i identify the problem or situation case needing to be addressed you know fill in whatever that is you know is that a diagnosis is that a situation with the leadership is this uh, a treatment you know and then do I know I ask myself do I know it yes I'm going to continue with the knowledge that I've used prior to that's been effective and it's you know it's relevant and it's safe and it's appropriate um, to get the positive outcomes um, if I'm unsure if I'm 50 50 if I am a no on not knowing the situation, the case, the diagnosis, the treatment, um, the next step is I usually go, is there expert opinion? So the expert opinion is going to be my supervising physical therapist, or it's going to be any of the medical providers, like a physician, a PA, NP, something like that. And I say this with, um, a little bit of caveat because I work in a hospital. So if somebody's having chest pain and stuff, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to call my PT. I'm going to go get the physician, right? They're right there. Yeah, definitely more situational. Yes. So take that with a grain of salt, but use it if you're in a facility that has that stuff, right? Um, so there's that expert opinion. Then I go to the research. So I go on you know, the internet, go to PubMed, National Institute of Health, wherever is peer-reviewed um, research papers, and I go look for whatever I have to. In a real-time situation, this is not going to work, by the way. This is going to be That's something what I was that ask. either... Like when... Yeah, you either do this before because you reviewed the, the patient chart before you have to see them, or your PT has told you that, hey, we got this case. This is how, this is what I want you to do. And if you further don't know something about it, that's the time to do it. 
or you do it afterwards too so you know better the next time you you know run into it um but that's not going to work in a real life situation unfortunately yeah it's like when do you but, consult the research is before you see the patient after but you yeah it could one. be before after it's not going to be during obviously um and then for from a research like uh, perspective then you discuss the findings with your supervising PT or with a colleague something like that and see see what they kind of think about this and challenge you because you don't want like to create such a biased opinion that like this the research is only thing that is going to work because there is yeah, like sometimes little wiggle room and there are different strengths of how applicable research is right yeah um yeah and then after that i take that knowledge whether that's from the peer the colleague the supervising pt the research and i ask myself can i apply this knowledge in the situation to the diagnosis to the treatment safely can i do this now as a clinician and if the answer is no, then I don't proceed on. That that means like my clinical skills lacking, which I need to get mentorship. That's where at appropriate time, I delegate this intervention or this patient to somebody else that's more appropriate because it's always about their safety. And then I take, I take that time to grow and either ask somebody that knows how to do these things to teach me these things, right? And I feel like that's um, a big part too, like knowing your own limitations and finding a course of action to be able to apply those new skills. If you can learn them, like grade five MOBs, we can't perform those. I'm not sure if there's any state really like for PTAs to perform grade five. Not that I've heard of, because I know there's even some states that can't do MOBs at all. Yeah. yeah. But seeing if you can learn these skills and then finding that time, I feel like that's a huge skill that people can benefit from because it's like you can't notice oh i can't perform this and then you can just ignore it, like oh i can't do it. okay i'll just have my pt do it but if you can learn it going out of your way to find time and learn those skills can just propel you in this field so much more yeah i know in our state in colorado um entry level uh knowledge of any mobilizations not appropriate for you to do them. So they actually leave it up to continuing education along with your supervising physical therapist to deem it appropriate. If they think that you can safely perform joint mobilizations, then you can do them up to grade four. You can't do grade five. Okay. I've seen PTAs do grade fives and I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> but you I know, and the, and the PT was right there, and they were on board, and the PT showed them how to do it. But I think that's one of those situations where maybe the PT just didn't know what they could delegate. So true, and we talked about that too with Laura recently. She's been working with so many different PTs because she's been transferring to different clinics, kind of covering wherever she needs to cover. And now that she has seven, eight years in the field she's starting to have more experience in some of these PTs that she's working with. And just like you said, there are some PTs that don't really know what PTAs can and can't do. 
So Laura's yeah. been feeling like she's in that education role of like, okay, this is what a PTA is. This is what I'm able to do, what I'm not able to do. And still just work with them. Like when we were talking about having a class in the PT program or the PTA program where like you can join up together so you can learn each other's roles and what you're able to do, which would be a nice thing to do, but I don't think any schools do that. Maybe they did Our before, but school did a PT PTA day, and um, I it had a really bad experience with it. Um, oh, it wasn't good. I, I I'd, I'd say like so the like from a people interacting perspective and treating each other like humans, yeah, it was great. But from the actual like the roles and defining, like the profession side of things, yes, the professional side of things, it was like it came across as the the dpt program was very um they're just very critical and um talking down about and like just how it and they were doing it in that like very um i have more education than you which don't get me wrong they do they're very smart there's a reason why we work below them but it wasn't it didn't um create a sense of teamwork and it, it left a lot of bad taste in a lot of the PTA yeah, I can see that. students when when we left there and it and it didn't really you know it was like 4 or 5 hours and they didn't really define who and how to delegate things and how to work as a team but it makes sense um we're just we're in different educational systems and it's just i don't know the education system in general just is it just didn't really plan out the way yeah and it's unfortunate that's kind of and like i'm sure you've worked with quite a few pts too and some there's a great relationship between both but there i've worked with a few that just have that superiority we're better than you type of deal which is unfortunate great pts definitely know their stuff like you said they're very smart but just the chemistry between the PTA and the PT just wasn't the best. Yeah, and I can say this for pretty much all the the PTs that I've worked for. They have all been amazing. And we've all learned stuff from each other, surprisingly, which is always good. That's what you want in a team role. You want to you take and give and just have that appreciation at the end of the day. I've only yeah, come across the, the egotistic um, PTs are usually the ones that are still in school and then they come on clinicals. And it's usually the first couple weeks that they have this kind of God complex. And then after those couple weeks, they just, they had a, a rude awakening that it's, it's a team. We all collaborate and PTAs, especially season ones, know quite a bit of stuff and they they were very savvy and we know a lot like so at the end of the day yeah i work underneath you you delegate what's appropriate to me that's your judgment call and then for me it's more like i'm gonna advocate for what i think i can provide for my patients so if i feel like you're not delegating appropriate things to me whether i don't know how to do them i'm gonna tell you or whether you're not delegating things to me that I know I can do and I have expertise in, 
I'm going to, now I have to talk to you about why it's appropriate to delegate said things to me. And but that's definitely something day, that comes over time. Yeah, and at the end of the day, for me, um, it really isn't a, a, like a dick measuring contest. Like, I just want to help the patients. That's all I care. Like, it's your call. You make the plan of care. So do what you're going to do, right? And True. And like you said, like, yeah. just learn from each other. And, like, that's how we get better and how you improve your critical thinking as a whole. Like, that's yeah. you get put in these situations where you have to think about it. And hopefully it's an unfamiliar situation. That way you have to make these new connections. Like you said, look up the research and do all that. Mm -hmm. And maybe down the road, if you have another patient that's similar, you can compare it to what you did last time, see if they still benefit from what you did last time, or maybe this patient's completely different. Even though they have a similar diagnosis, your approach might be different. Yeah. So that's why nobody's like a cookie cutter. Definitely. I mean, there's going to be things that are algorithmic to like, let's say total knees or total hips and apply that to whatever diagnosis that PT sees a lot of. And for the most part, yeah, you should be able to progress that patient on that protocol, right? But every patient is very specific and they're unique human beings. So just because I read somewhere that manual therapy is not great for total knee or whatever outside of the, you know, doing passive range of motion or active assisted, like sometimes people just need a, you know, they need a massage, they need the touch. And for some reason that just helps people. So, you know, sprinkle in, I would say, you know, 75% of the treatment, I personally try to do more research based, like evidence-based treatment. And then if they want, you know, some of the kind of more, you know, touch type therapy, like the manual therapies, I'll do it because I know, you know, for them, that's meaningful. Some people just need that. Yeah, they mean it. So take it or leave it. And then I guess back on to like, you know, after applying that treatment, like, um, for me, I monitor the treatments like is while I'm doing this treatment, is it having um, a positive effect? Is it having no effect? Is it having a negative effect? And then from there, you need to be able to think through why, and then you need to be able to modify that, you know? And I, I say modify, and do you need to, can you progress or do you have to regress or do you have to stay right where you are? You know, and then that critical thinking for me just kind of goes in a circle, okay? And it's always going to go in a circle. It's like, okay, patient's doing good. I, you know, keep progressing. And then sometimes it's like patient's not doing good. This is actually having more of a negative effect. They're having more pain or they're having, you know, let's say, you're working with a shoulder and they're starting to have chest pain. Like, is that referred pain or are they starting to have a heart attack? Because this is like a 75 year old, you know, female type two diabetes, hyperlipidemia, all this stuff is like, I need to start thinking about this stuff. It's not just the shoulder anymore. And And that's like the big thing too, is the why, like if you can't answer why you're doing something, then you might need to revisit what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. My PT does the same thing. Anytime I perform a certain intervention, he always just asks me, like, why did you do that? 
and if I can answer it, then great, I'm on the right track. If I'm just throwing random stuff at the patient just because I feel like, oh, this could be beneficial with no reason whatsoever, then he just kind of gives me a look as to, okay, well, figure out why you're doing certain things. And then that would be more beneficial for the patient rather than just blindly throwing random exercises that have nothing to do with what you're working on. Yeah, and I think that's the hard part about going out into the the real world after graduating the initial program is a lot of times um, most people just kind of throw random stuff at patients and we don't really think of, we don't stop to think of why am I doing this? And I think if we take a moment to be like, okay, like, Right out of school, I worked in a lot of sniffs, so I saw a lot of stroke stuff. And I always wanted to be like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I actually doing this? And once I started thinking about this, I was like, okay. Like, I think sometimes we miss the point of what we're doing. We're just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put them in quadruped because this is what, you know, the OT and the PT before me was doing, or I've seen this and this is what you just do it's that's like, true no it's like you're trying to create you know joint approximation so it facilitates more muscle contraction and decreases plasticity or um or even you know uh i'm blanking on this right now but like muscle spasms and stuff like that um depending on which stage they are how they present but like you should be thinking about that you should be like oh i'm doing this because i'm trying to help patient with x x y or z and i think we also kind of overcomplicate things with like sexy looking exercises when sometimes it's like it only just takes the super like, basic ones yeah super basic stuff and and just keeping them going with that over a period of time and then just either adjusting their intensity or the volume of how of how they're doing it is actually makes a better outcome than being like okay today i'm gonna have you do quadruped and tomorrow i'm gonna have you do walking and there's no consistency there's no continuity of care but they need like you gotta do things on purpose like have a reason to what you're doing and i feel like that will help you and help the the patient in the long run. Yeah. Well, speaking of the process, um, and then we talked a little bit about uh, certain cases. So I don't know if you want to go into the case that you have now or one that you've had previously that you kind of had to go through this critical thinking process in order to be able to address the patient's needs. So I'm going to go over not the patient that I have now um, but I'll go over a past patient um, my patient had a form of prions disease it affects your nervous system your brain think of mad cow disease and try not get, try not get too specific for very specific reasons of HIPAA and whatnot I don't want to share too much um, and it's a very rare disease I think there's like only I, I don't even know that it's it's so rare in the US but um, anyways this patient had this disease and we basically 
help this person from the beginning stages to where they presented very normally. You could have conversations with them. Um, they walked and talked. You would not know, you know, all the way to the end stages of person was babbling, could not really understand you, basically reverted back to almost like a, think of like a three or four year old kid had balance problems. I mean, it's your nervous system. This is affecting. So for me, how they would fluctuate between visits. They would not really fluctuate. It was a insidious disease. So it would just only progress. It would never, it would never be like, um, like sometimes with beginning of Parkinson's, you can kind of have that fluctuation, right? Uh, you can mm-hmm. come in and the person's um, balance and gait and everything is good, and then the next day they can be tripling, tripping over themselves and barely make a sentence and not remember things. This was more so uh, went from being um, a grown adult, highly functioning, had a good life, to basically um, being wheelchair bound, supervision 24 seven type thing. And so me, how I applied this critical thinking, first of all, I did not know what this disease is. I've heard of it, but I knew nothing about it. So that being said, I went and I looked it up from just a pathology standpoint, a diagnosis standpoint, a medical standpoint. What is this? It affects the the prion protein and it's affecting how it's folded and it's not folding correctly. So, and that affects the nervous system and the neurotransmitters and all that stuff. And it just kind of keeps declining. But how it presents from a PT standpoint is more so we want to work on the impairments so things like Okay, balance, strength, coordination. How do I work on these things? Um, and my PT that I was working with too didn't really know much about it either. So it was, we were learning together, right? Um, and yeah, so I just identified the problem situation. I didn't know the diagnosis. I go look up the diagnosis, medically read what they do for it. There's nothing they can do for it, really, um, right now. It's incurable. So did you just address, like, which impairments would you address each visit, or...? So it, it was mainly balance, a lot of balance, a lot of strength. So um, when the person got to later stages, it would be more like we need the person to be able to go to the bathroom, to toilet, and not fall over, or, you know, be able to transfer from a wheelchair into bed without falling over. Pretty much the same movements, right? Stand pivot transfers or be able to walk like five feet just in case without falling over. So what treatments could I do with this? Well, one, I could just go for the lowest apple on the tree, which is have them practice stand pivot transfers. But because of the person's cognitive behavior and they're reverted, they can become combative and or they just need they need a hundred percent tactile verbal cues to stay on task for sequencing you make things into games i found out so 
have the I would eventually have the patient stand up out of the wheelchair. I would put a, a table in front of them. That way, they needed to put their hands on the table and write themselves. They could, but in between the table and the wheelchair, I put like a medicine ball, one that had handles that they could pick up, and I said, through trial and error, sometimes I'd be like, you know, I'd overcomplicate things, and this I they. Figured, I figured out they only needed one-step cues. And I'd be like, I want you to bend over from your hips, and I want you to reach with your hands like this, and blah, blah, blah. And I overcomplicated it, and the patient's like, I ain't doing that. I'm just not really understanding, yeah. No. So then I was like, okay, why is this not working? I'm giving them too much information. They don't understand. So I changed my verbal cues to, I want you to stand up. I want you to pick up that ball. And I just want you to put it on the table in front of you. And I kid you not, this person could beautifully execute a deadlift. Hip hinges, like, perfect. But, like, you need to be able to kind of think through that as opposed to being like, oh, patient just can't do the, do what I said, right? So I'm not going to yeah, do Yeah, it might anymore. be the cueing that's the, the yeah. thing that they're having difficulty understanding. Yeah, it's not always the patient. Sometimes it's us, and we need to be better at our verbal cues and our sequencing and all this stuff. And we need to, like you said, sometimes we need to slow down and maybe humble ourselves and be like, okay, is this like, what's going on here? But anyways, with said patient, I did that. And then, you know, I could work on little things like being like, okay, I want you to put your feet a little bit wider. So sometimes I put a box in between their feet so they'd have a wider base of support and have them do the same thing and a lot of it was consistency so I'd have them build up that motion and then I could have them doing you know standing and reaching stuff on the table like doing puzzles or whatnot with you know standby assist or contact guard assist and get more of their dexterity their their gross more motor skills even along with some of their fine motor skills, depending on how hard you wanted to make it, but just something to get them standing and shifting their weight, challenging them a little bit. And honestly, it wasn't anything sexy and groundbreaking, like, oh, I want you to go, you know, do a walking lunge or something like that, which would have been great, but the patient only needs to be able to stand up without falling over, and the patient is standing up on their own and falling over, so we need to be make them better at standing up, you know, and then give them. And that's why you have these, like, yeah, like you have these progressions. Try to yeah. get the first thing done before you just kind of gung ho to the next one. Yeah, I think a similar, I think it's somewhat similar so my pt treated someone with lambert eaton syndrome i don't know if you've ever heard of that diagnosis i'd have have to look it up so lambert eaton syndrome is a condition where the body's immune system attacks the connections between the nerves and the muscles okay and kind of just how you said about like the whole progressive with like parkinson's so i did the research on this patient but my pt handled their entire treatment and the reason for that was he had to do almost a reassessment every single time they came in because sometimes they were able to walk with no walker with no assisted device so he was able to push the patient a little bit more sometimes they'd come in a wheelchair it just kind of depended on the day how they were feeling so because of this constant reassessment 
he decided it was just best for the PT to handle this patient. Yeah. Um, have you come across that situation at all where it's just the patient was just so complex to the point where the PT had to handle it? Or were you still able to do your research and apply your knowledge to these cases? So for this specific patient, it was never just handled by the PT. We both continued on the case. Okay. Um, I would even argue I probably knew more about it than they did. Um, like you said, sometimes we just see them more. Yeah, um, and I try to be pretty thorough. When I don't know something, I really dive into it because I'll learn it once and then I won't forget it, right? That's what I... Mm -hmm. So if I ever come across this again, hopefully I'll... You know, nothing has changed. Maybe maybe they come up with a treatment medically that can actually help these people live a full and healthy life. But, like, outside of that, it's like... I don't want to learn it again, or I don't want to just kind of know it. So every time I have to relearn it. Um, but I, yeah, to answer your question for this patient, no, I didn't have to fully hand it back over to the PT and he didn't have to fully take it away from me. We both felt comfortable doing what we're doing. Um, eventually the patient, you know, was eventually transferred out of our facility because it just wasn't an appropriate place anymore. At some point, these people, be, they can become very combative, and it's just we don't have a facility that can handle that that 24-hour supervision type stuff. Um, I'm trying to think of past work scenarios if I've ever had a too complex patient to handle. I think if I personally haven't, but I'm almost thinking these patients never saw my caseload to begin with. So I probably just never knew they were, you know, gotcha. going to be, yeah, they're actually going going to be seen. Yeah, I, they might have a preference for the PT. The PT might have been uh, clinically specialized to deal with that. So usually I think the PTs are good at recognizing that and not delegating it to PTAs that they don't find appropriate, which is fine. That's what they should do. And then speaking of like the whole combative situation, like how do you handle that? Because I know when I was working at the at the hospital here, we did have a couple patients that were combative and usually they were restrained and we would have to take off the restraints, try to work with them. Have you had a patient that like you had to terminate the treatment session because they were just getting too combative or you're just aware of it when you walk in do you do I, any extra steps to kind of protect yourself i yeah so i definitely always i would say it's more of just being more aware of it or i guess taking extra steps is the same of awareness like awareness could be part of that step right um i i've had to terminate sessions because you know, the patients had been getting agitated. So something like, you know, more of the dementias, Alzheimer's, um, stuff like that. I never really experienced it with the patient we were just talking about. Um, mm -hmm. They could get riled up, but I, we knew from the beginning of the day that, you know, they weren't appropriate to work with. Or, and uh, I think maybe it's just my, my sixth sense. I can sense that 
the person's not appropriate to work with. I try to, for me, I try to remain calm because I feel like if I'm calm, if I'm using calm voice and I am not being confrontational, my body language is being very open and I keep a safe distance from the person because every time I go into a patient's room, I do that first with my assessment, right? Like, how's their behavior? And if there's something off, I'm going to, I'm going to talk with them. I'm not just going to be like, okay, let's get you up and let's, this is what we're doing. No, I want them to feel comfortable with me and I want to feel comfortable with them. So a lot of times when patients are starting to get agitated to a point where I feel they're going to become combative, I don't continue on. I remove myself from the situation. I try not to agitate them more. Um, so that I don't leave them agitated in the next person's hands, okay? I don't want to agitate a patient and then, you know, the nurse has to come deal with that. That's kind of shitty, right? It does happen, but yeah. I don't want to do that. Better if avoid it if you can. Yeah, better avoid it. And then I, if I have time later in the day where I can reapproach the person, cool. And this is more from an inpatient, not from an outpatient. If I sense that somebody's being inappropriate outpatient-wise, um, They'll usually, I'll approach them the same way. They'll get kind of a warning. I'll be like, maybe today's just not, we're not working together today. And they're, that's, that's it. They're going to have to. Yeah. Work. You definitely have to fill that out. Like it, again, I also feel like that's a skill you kind of learn as you go to be able to kind of judge a situation. And like you said, kind of keep a calm voice, keep a calm demeanor. I feel like that goes a long way when working with these combative patients, difficult patients. When I was working with uh, a patient with dementia, uh, the OT I was with, we walked into the room. She was freaking out, thinking that like she was being abducted by aliens. Someone came in and hurt her in the middle of the night, so she was not okay with us being in the room initially. So me and the PT kind of just stayed by the door while the OT just went by themselves. That way she didn't feel like she was being crowded by all of us. And what the OT did was kind of knelt down and stooped to her level instead of just standing looking down at her he kind of just met her eye level had a normal conversation and before we did any sort of treatment just try to talk it out first yeah gauge the situation and then if you feel okay if they feel comfortable like you said um both parties feel comfortable you continue with the treatment if not then you just kind of conclude it there and try again next time maybe some other therapist wants to give it a try but i think forcing those situations would cause more harm than good yeah and you'll find this a lot more with i I feel like more neuro patients than anything so if you're working with stroke patients especially like this is going to be a a big thing um just being able to try to remain as calm as you can make sure that when you're going in um you're just trying to assess the vibe of the person and I know vibes kind of very spiritual or whatever word, but try to, ex, you know, try to assess their behavior, their demeanor. Like, how are they doing? And I like the fact that the OT got on eye level. I try to do that as much as I can because sometimes being higher than people, it gives us more authoritarian version of ourselves like we're healthcare providers we want to help you lower eye level try to make eye contact and you can pick up stuff even if people are being eye avoidant and, and grimacing and how they hold their 
their shoulders and postures and stuff, you know? And then you can kind of go from there. Yeah, I agree. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, I don't know if you had any closing ideas before we go into part two for the next episode. We're talking about work-life balance. But as far as critical thinking and recent challenging cases, did you have anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? No, I think to summarize it is, for me, identify the problem, whether, you know, that's the situation, diagnosis, um, a treatment. Do I know it? Yes then I'm good to go. If I don't, I'm unsure. If I feel 50-50, I'm either going to ask an expert opinion, which is your supervising PT, or another clinical um, person. So if it's like something like a heart attack symptom, something like that, you can definitely get a physician or even a nurse or something like that and get their expert opinion. Other thing I say, do your research. You're not going to be able to do this in, re- in real time. Um, do it before or after you don't know something and learn always learn and get better it's a learning field we're never going to stop learning we have to take con ed um and then yeah apply set skills and knowledge once you learn it and assess from there is it having positive negative or no effect and kind of create that wheel in your head this is what i should be doing i mean there's a lot of little moving parts that everybody can like sprinkle in to make this better but that's like the bare bones of this like this is how you should be feeling and with PT being more of an evidence-based treatment career we should be thinking more critically and we should be going to literature more so it doesn't mean it's the end means to all but it is important I agree with everything you said I think a lot of that was taking it upon ourselves too so you have to want to improve yourself you have to go to the research yourself Uh, you mentioned ceus that's something that's a requirement those can be as useful or as useless as you want them to be you can kind of escape eye or you can genuinely try to sit down and learn something so it's definitely on each one of us want to better ourselves and in the end that'll actually help benefit our patients as well yep So with that, we'll wrap up this episode. Thank you, Joe, for joining us for part one. We will be back for part two for work-life balance. And tune into that probably uh, next week. Trying to think of the days these are coming out, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out for sure. All right, well, hopefully Laura is like halfway across the Pacific where she's trying to get to. Yeah, she's somewhere. (laughs) She's somewhere in the Pacific. (laughs) All right, guys, take care.